everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with Noor Siddiqui today. Uh, Noor, how are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Awesome to be here. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. Um, so can you tell the audience a little bit about your background? Sure, yeah. My background is in um, uh, computer science, and I studied that at Stanford. And um, before Stanford, I started a company called Remedy as part of the Teal Fellowship. Okay. I thought for a Teal Fellowship, you have to, uh, I thought you'd have to not go to college. Yeah, yeah. That's totally the deal. So I didn't go to college for uh, two and a half years and then ended up uh, going after. So I sort of was a contrarian um, not going and then was a contrarian to the contrarians by just deciding to go after. So I'm, I'm very used to uh, people disagreeing with me. Okay. And you're also the CAA of uh, ORCID, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And what, what, what do they do? What does ORCID do? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so ORCID, the, the main mission here is we want to help couples have healthy babies. And what we've done is we've developed a new type of genetic test for couples who are planning on having a child soon. So what we do is we analyze both partners' DNA and we identify the disease risk that's most likely to impact their future child's health. So we're looking for the top diseases, things like cancer, heart disease, schizophrenia, and diabetes. So the conditions that really matter to parents. And um, unlike most genetic tests that aren't really actionable, you can't really do anything about them. Um, one of the options that we offer is embryo testing, which means that you can quantify the risk for each of these diseases in each embryo, and then the couple can select the healthiest embryo to implant. So our overall goal here is really to give parents peace of mind and to give um, you know every child a better chance at a healthy life. Yeah. So, so you're uh, so. Can you talk a little bit actually before we get to the sort of the mechanics of the of the business? Can you talk a little bit uh, about the science behind it? Uh, so. The genetic testing people are, I think, are familiar with. There's certain diseases like, um, uh, like Down syndrome, where you know it's it's a simple binary, right? But you guys are doing something different. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the polygenic risk scores and then the science behind it? Sure. Yeah. So essentially, historically, clinical genetics has really focused on identifying these rare genetic changes that diagnose a rare genetic diseases. So these are things like Huntington's or Tay-Sachs, and you know, I kind of think about this whole category as old school genetics. Um, and basically what they're looking at is really small um, data sets and really you know, specific one, one monogenic. So one gene causes a disease. And the problem with old school genetics is that when you're looking at really rare variants, so if you think about um, hereditary cancer testing, there are these really rare variants that a really small fraction of the population has that makes you elevated risk for a certain disease. So um, one of the changes that's happened over the last couple of years is that now we have these data sets that are much, much larger. So we have hundreds of thousands, millions of people that have been sequenced. And what you can do with that data is that instead of um, just being able to tell folks who have these really rare variants that they're at elevated risk, you can tell a much larger fraction of people that they're at equivalent risk. And the way that these studies work is they're called genome-wide association studies. So you have cases, so individuals without the disease, individuals with the disease, and then you have controls, individuals without the disease, and you're looking for statistical associations, variants that are enriched in the people with the disease that are, are not there in the people without the disease. So when you when you you know, run this genome-wide association study, you um, are able to develop something called a polygenic risk score. So instead of saying, okay, here's this single gene that causes you to get um, Tay-Sachs, you can say, here's dozens or millions of variants across your genome that um, give you a risk score, and that, that, that risk score corresponds to being four times as likely to develop the disease, five times as, like, as likely to develop the disease, uh, what have you. So what's really exciting about polygenic risk scores today is that 
being in a high percentile for polygenic risk is equivalent to a monogenic mutation. So we're sort of seeing the marrying of, you know, both really rare genetic variation and its impact in health with here's some more common genetic variation. So um, polygenic risk, for example, is able to um, capture uh, many more people who are at equivalent risk um, as monogenic mutations. Does that make sense? Or did I, did I muddle the distinction there? Uh, I mean, it makes sense to me, but I, I know a little bit about this. I think, you know, for the audience, you can probably just break it down a little bit. So the um, so the, the idea is that for most things, right, for, for a lot of diseases and a lot of traits, uh, every gene, basically, they're, they're, uh, there's a lot of genes that go into it, right? And you can't, and it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a binary. It's like, there's a score of a propensity to say have schizophrenia, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the vast majority of diseases that people care about, they're not governed by a single gene, right? So for any, for heart disease, for schizophrenia, for diabetes, for height, for almost everything that people care about, it's not a single gene that governs whether or not you get that disease or you get that trait. Uh, for a very small fraction of diseases, things like Tay-Sachs, Down syndrome, cystic fibrosis, there is a single gene cause that's been identified. So the main advance that's happened very recently is that now, instead of just being able to diagnose these rare genetic conditions, we can now um, measure and quantify people's susceptibility to the diseases that are much more prevalent, you know, like heart disease or schizophrenia. Yeah. And so and so we, we needed a lot of we needed a huge samples for our sizes to do this because, you know, otherwise everything is so small, you wouldn't, you wouldn't detect the signal. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. So basically we had to have um, compute get cheaper. We had to get sequencing get cheaper. We had to have uh, these cohorts mature over many years so that we could track and say, okay, who ended up getting heart disease? Who ended up getting um, all of these conditions? We had to marry the uh, medical records with the with the sequencing data. So it just took a lot of time to uh, aggregate all of these things. So even though, you know, the genome was sequenced so long ago, um, you know, we never, it, it, it just took until, you know, just a few years ago until we actually had the data that we needed for these models to um, get to a level where they're clinically useful. And how accurate can you, can you get for traits that people care about uh, just from, just from genetic scores? Yeah, so you can tell, you can quantify for someone, you know, which percentile uh, of genetic risk are you in? So are you in the 99th percentile? Are you in the 50th percentile? Are you in the first percentile? So if you're in the 99th percentile for something like heart disease, that can correspond to being uh, five times the baseline average risk for the disease. So for for most people, they, you know, you know, when you're when your child is born, you're like, oh, my child is in the 50th percentile for weight or the 60th percentile for weight. You're like, okay, I feel relieved. Um, so similarly, um, you know, my position is that if you are in the 99th percentile for breast cancer risk, that's also something that you want to know and that you might want to take action on. So that's why we're providing that information to parents in, in this setting. Yeah. And so, uh, so how, so how does it, um, so basically how does it, how does it work just like technically? So pe- couples come to you, they, uh, they have to go through, uh, it's, it's in vitro fertilization, right? They need a number of embryos usually, and then you select based on, based on the polygenic scores. Yeah, exactly. So I guess to back up, there's sort of two products here, right? So the first product is just a saliva-based test. So we, you, both partners spit in a tube, and then we simulate the outcome of recombination, and we tell uh, a couple, hey, your child is expected to be normal risk for everything. Like, you should just, um, you know, relax and have peace of mind. Uh, the other outcome for that um, couple report is, hey, you're, you know, in the 99th percentile, or you're at elevated risk for this one condition. And this is how much you could mitigate that risk if you were to create, you know, five embryos or 10 embryos during IVF. So it's just another data point for them to say, um, you know, 
this disease has affected me, it affected my partner, it affected my family member, um, and I see that I'm at elevated genetic risk, and here's uh, one potential mitigation action that I could take. So if they were to take that mitigation action, what it would look like is they would go through IVF, they would create embryos, and then we would sequence each of those embryos. So uh, on day five, an embryo is about is called a blastocyst. It's about 125 cells. So five of those cells are sampled, and those are sent to our lab, and then they're um, fully sequenced. So in, in, in addition to polygenic risk, there's actually a lot of other um, risks that you can evaluate when you have whole genome sequencing data. But, but um, yeah, for, for, for the purposes of what we're talking about, if, if, if a couple is concerned about something like schizophrenia or heart disease, they would be using a polygenic risk score to, to quantify uh, the risk present in each embryo. And before they came to you, I mean, they would, you would presumably know something about your genetic risk because, you know, you'd know if you ever been diagnosed with schizophrenia and you'd know if you had it in your family or heart disease or, or anything, right? Um, it would be pretty, uh, is there, I mean, for people who have, you know, enough, of the, uh, large enough families to have a sample size, are there a lot of surprises in there or it's usually pretty much what people expect? Mm, I, th I think it's hard to say, right? Because, you know, one thing that's really frustrating about existing genetic tests is like, let's say your uh, mom or your sibling has breast cancer, right? If you go to today to take a hereditary cancer panel, there's a really small number of genes that are evaluated. So just because you don't have that rare variation, that doesn't mean that uh, there's still not a hereditary component to the disease. So that's what's exciting about a polygenic risk score is that um, it can tell you you can quantify specifically for you how high risk are you. So if my if my um, you know you know sister were to have the disease and then I would be in the 50th percentile, then I could you know breathe a, a little bit more of a sigh of relief to say okay I don't actually have elevated risk. Versus if I ended up in the 99th percentile, then okay I I should be a little bit more um, concerned that I'm at I have have an elevated genetic susceptibility to the disease. So that's what's I guess useful or exciting about polygenic risk as composed to as as uh, as opposed to just these these rare hereditary cancer panels. So I, I guess um, to respond to your question about how, how often is it surprising, it's sort of, I guess, yeah, it just depends on, you know, uh, how many siblings you have or, or how um, how closely tied you are with your family's uh, health history. A lot of times people um, disguise their health history. I mean, I, I've been really surprised to hear that, um, you know, many couples were going through our reporting, they'll, they're looking for information about, um, you know, just just their mother. You know, did they have a did their mom have a C section? Did their mom have uh, gestational diabetes? Did their mom have preeclampsia? Any of these other um, you know conditions that you know, would be useful for a daughter to know before she goes into her pregnancy? And you know, it's just not a topic that is that is discussed. So it's really surprising. Um, you know, people often are not open about um, you know things that would be re very relevant to their um, you know family members. Yeah, you're right. I mean, of course, because the siblings can have different you know, polygenic scores, right? That, that's the whole basis of what you're doing. So yeah, your family background will tell you something, but it won't, you know, it, obviously it's much better to have the, uh, the genetic data. Uh, so when people come to you, are, are they, are they usually, um, are they usually already pretty set on IVF, doing IVF for whatever reason, or are they often just, you know, uh, getting the test and then deciding based on that? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I mean, that's, what's so interesting about the time that we live in now is that, uh, you know, I'm, um, you know, I, I'm 27 and a huge number of my friends are, are going through egg freezing and that, you know, that wasn't as common, you know, just five years ago, just 10 years ago. Um, so there's some people who are very set on doing IVF because, uh, because of, uh, you know, they already have documented infertility. There's some people who are set on doing IVF because they know they have, um, you know, a single gene mutation that they want to address via, via, um, you know, PGT, which is, uh, 
uh, embryo screening. Um, and there's other folks who just really want to go into their pregnancy as informed as possible and, um, you know, would, would be in, would, would consider the possibility of IVF if they discovered a significant risk that they were worried about. Yeah. How much does this all cost? So the couple report is $1,100 and the embryo testing we uh, haven't released yet. So I can't, I can't comment on price yet. Okay. Oh, so the product has not been, is not available yet or, or you just don't make, don't make that information public? Yeah, yeah. So the embryo testing is going to be available um, in Q1 of next year, but right now it's just uh, it's just being used in a um, clinical setting at Stanford. Uh-huh. And you guys are the first people to do this, right? This is the, theoretically. There's no scientific. There's no scientific barrier here, right? We know we know, but we have G, uh, GWAS. We we you know we so we have this data. We can do IVF. And so is it right that this is, there's no sort of scientific uncertainty? I mean, there's uncertainty, obviously, with, you know, everything you do, but, you know, the mm-hmm. science is solid and you guys are just the first ones to be able to put it together and uh, put together a business or are there other companies doing the same thing? Yeah. So the thing that's also pretty compelling is uh, actually the chemistry behind it. So when you're looking at embryos and you're talking about uh, just, just a handful of cells, like, you know, five cells, um, there's actually not very a lot of DNA. So if you think about blood or saliva, there's a lot more uh, DNA in blood or saliva than in you know, just five cells off of an embryo. So there's actually quite a few advances on the chemistry or the amplification side in order to be able to call uh, a whole genome sequence off of an embryo. So that's something that you know, we're, we're really excited and proud of being able to introduce. And um, you know, there's implications for that data uh, beyond just polygenic risk scores. There's monogenic panels, there's structural. So basically anything that can go wrong with a text file can go wrong with your genome, right? So you can have insertions, you can have deletions, you can have uh, the word the, you know, copied way too many times. So all of those um, different types of genetic typos can be detected with whole genome sequencing. And that's, um, that technology hasn't been applied to IVF and specifically to this problem. So yeah, we feel super honored and excited to be able to introduce that to, to parents in such a, um, you know, important moment in their lives. Yeah. So, so you said that you can, you can extract enough DNA to do the full genome sequencing with just five cells and that, and that's an innovation. Other companies can't do that. Yeah, that's correct. As far as far as I know, there's there's no other company offering whole genome sequencing of embryos. But t- to be fair, we we haven't uh, released it publicly yet. It's just 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 in uh, uh, you know a handful of clinical cases at Stanford right now. So in in Q1, I'll be really excited to announce that uh, to everyone. Yeah. Well, that's that. Yeah, that is that's exciting. I, I just feel like honored and flattered, I guess, to be able to offer this to these families because each individual has such a compelling story and and reason for why they're pursuing this type of testing. So. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would say every single um, sign up is, is is personally meaningful to me. Can you t- can you talk about uh, like sort of the demographic balance of the people coming to you? Like how many are gay couples? How many are just you know heterosexual couples with uh, you know with concerns? How many are just single women? Did you uh, do you know that or do you keep track of that? Um, we should keep track of that. I actually don't think that's a question in our questionnaires. You know what? Who's your partner and things like that. But. Um, yeah, I could I could add that to, to our questionnaire, and then uh, maybe I'll be able to get back to you next time next time we chat. I actually don't know those those stats. <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that that's fascinating. Okay, cool. I mean, best best of luck to you. I mean, this is this is amazing. How how did you um how did you become interested in um in IVF and uh, genetic screening and you know the, the, these related topics? Yeah, so um, my mom has a really rare uh, condition. It's called uh, renal pigmentosa. So she ended up she in her in her early 30s got this diagnosis that she was going to progressively go blind throughout her life and um my siblings and i were all super terrified and devastated 
um, because obviously your, your vision plays a huge role in um, you know your ability to to be independent in your life. And my mom is sort of a fiercely independent uh, person, and you know we kind of watched her um, you know lose the ability to drive, which is you know. And but not, but not before getting into uh, you know many car accidents and uh, being unwilling to admit that her vision actually was uh, degrading, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I just grew up being super worried that um, this was going to affect other members of the of the family, that it would affect me, and then you know as I got older, that it would affect my kids, and then um, you know as I started um, you know spending more time in um, genomics, I was just shocked that you know things had changed dramatically from where they were uh, ten years ago. Right now, genetics has become a computational science. It's not that you know, you have these really small pedigree studies of just a, a single family or a handful of families that, um, you know, uh, you know, just a, a geneticist can, can analyze. Right now, computer scientists are actually useful. Um, data scientists are actually useful in order to build these models that help stratify and quantify risk for individuals. Um, so I think that's kind of, it's sort of a very long <laughs> story, but um, it's, uh, it's something, gen- genetics has interested me from a very young age um, because of the experience with my mom, but uh, I wasn't lucky enough to think that I, there was actually a contribution that I could make until, um, you know, much, much later in my life. Yeah, I've, I've also been fascinated by, you know, by uh, genetics and uh, the research. I mean, the behavioral genetics research is absolutely fascinating. Um, and then, uh, you know, I've, I've just been reading, um, there's a book called Who Are We by David Reich. Have you read it? No, no. Tell me about it. Uh, is it called Who Are We? It's called, uh, let me see. David Reich. I'm just googling here. Uh, yes, it is. Who are who? Who we, are, who we are? Not who are we? Who we are and how we got here? Yeah, he's a Harvard. Um, he's a Harvard. Uh, what does his field be called? He's like an anthropologist, a biological anthropologist. And what you can do now um, is you can extract DNA from people who lived, you know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, and you can sort of re- uh, you can sort of um, uh, reconstruct history uh, based on genetics now. Right. So mm-hmm. you can go to like a place like Hungary and you can uh, look at people's genetics in Hungary. And then you can look at who was living in Hungary a thousand years ago, who was living 2000 years ago, right? who was living 3000 years ago. And you could do this for every region of the world. Um, and this is something that's new. You just needed the, you needed to be able to sequence and you needed to be uh, able to, um, to draw the, to, uh, you know, just extract the DNA from these, you know, these old fossils, these old, uh, these old remains, right? Um, and it's absolutely fascinating. You could reconstruct sort of, uh, uh, you know, like you could say the population of Europe was, you know, replaced, 70% of them were replaced and, you know, whatever this year, 1,000, 2,000 years ago. Um, I think it was about, I think, I think it was earlier than that. But there was this entire like population replacement in Europe, right? For example, you can look at a caste system in India. You can look at like the genetic uh, basis for that. Um, and it's, uh, it's really cool because this is, this is based on science, apparently, that's only, you know, been around for five or 10 years. So it's completely new. And there's these um, historical debates, like the origins of the Indian caste system, which people would just, you know, discuss and, you know, they, they rely on textual evidence. And then eventually you can have the genetic evidence from, from the remains. And then you could put it together and you could basically reconstruct history. So it's, it's really, really cool. Um, and yeah, it's just, it just reminds me of, it reminds me of what you're talking about because, because, you know, there's so many things that stagnate, like my background is, you know, political science, I, I read in, uh, uh, you know, the social sciences, and a lot of the stuff is just, you know, it's not like there's some cutting edge breakthrough thing 10 or 20 years ago that's like, you know, revolutionize the world, right? Um, where you look at the study of ancient history, you know, with, with anything having to do with biology, um, so you have this intersect of like biology, computational power, right? It seems like that's where things are taking off, right? 
And that's what, you know, that's, that's what Reich and his lab are doing. And that's what I think, you know, you're doing too. You're on the cutting edge of something that's, you know, that is going to, is going to impact the world. I mean, you could just, you could just see the way things are progressing. Yeah. I mean, that's actually what got me so excited about this problem, to be honest, because I think that there's basically right now or at this moment in history, which is okay, before this moment, you know, parents had no ability to, um, you know, stack the odds in their child's favor against disease, right? And then now, at this moment, there's this convergence of tools, right? Sort of the, um, you know, the computational resources and the data is finally here. And then on the chemistry side, the amplification technology is finally there where we can actually read the DNA off of something as small as an embryo accurately, right? So it's required the convergence of so many different forces in order for things to be um, at the place that they're at today. And now, it just feels, um, you know, extremely exciting to be at this moment where, you know, parents have this fundamentally new capability that they never had before um, and something that is sort of so tied to um, human nature, right? Which is like, I want to have my child, I want my child to have a better life. I want my child to not suffer in the same way um, that I did. And, you know, there's, there's nothing more fundamental than um, health and to be able to give parents that, you um, superpowers is just, um, you know, really exciting because for a lot of couples, this is the difference between, um, you know, having a child and not having one because they have, they have so much anxiety um, uh, and stress around, um, you know, you know, not wanting to have a child because if they did, they would be worried that they would have the same condition that, um, you know, one of the partners suffers from. So, yeah, it's just, it's just really cool when, um, you know, you, you stand on the shoulders of giants and you're able to um, contribute something that, you know, hopefully will have a really positive impact on, um, families. Yeah. And I like on your website, you talk about sort of the ethical considerations of this. And I, I think we think about this in, in similar ways. So can you talk about sort of the ethical uh, objections and how you respond to them and how you see them? Um, which one do you think is sort of the, uh, the steel man? What do you think is the most significant? Why don't we can start there? I think they're all terrible to be honest. It's really hard, <laughs> for, me to, hard for me to steal man something that I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I guess it's something along, I mean, there's something, something, you know, inequality, right. And so there, you know, some people will be able to afford it or not, which, you know, I, I, okay. So let me, let me, let me try to, let me try it. I'll, I'll make the best effort I can. Okay, there's inequality. Some people will be able to afford it, while others won't. So this will lead to, uh, you know, some classes having you know healthier children uh, <clears throat> than others. Um, and then there's the idea that you could have, and there's so there's an ethical concern, but then there's also an unintended consequences concern that if you uh, select for certain things, you might have, you might get some other things that you're not selecting for, and this could have. Uh, so this could have, you know, larger social implications. So I guess can you talk about those, the inequality and then the unintended consequences? Yeah. So I think for the inequality one, it's sort of, um, it's really sad because our society is so uh, unequal in so many different ways, right? Like even if you just go one step back talking about IVF, right? So we're already in a situation where people who have more means are able to have children and people with less means aren't able to have children, right? Because infertility isn't considered a, um, you know, isn't considered a disease in the United States. It's not covered um, universally by insurance companies. So you're already in a situation where, you know, some people are able to afford treatment and other people aren't. So I think that's, you know, super unfortunate. And, you know, we should be working to, to change that, right? I mean, you know, there's been dozens of studies that show that people who are in infertile have the same psychological distress as someone who's getting, being given a cancer diagnosis, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, a very significant um, 
diagnosis to receive. And, you know, we should support support every one of those families who, who wants to have children. And it's not unusual to do that. So, for example, um, Israel actually offers universal IVF for uh, any woman up until the age of 44. So it's sort of just a societal decision. We have to say, hey, you know, we value families. We value people having disability. Other countries have chosen to do that. And, you know, we could certainly choose to do that as well. So um, I actually think that that's probably one of the most... Um, legitimate arguments, because I do think that this should be available to everyone. But uh, unfortunately, that's just not, uh, you know, the, the the system that we've all you know chosen to agree to, right? I mean, everyone doesn't have an iPhone, everyone doesn't have, um, you know, lots of things, some that are more significant, um, you know, that more significantly impact people's lives than, um, than, than others. So uh, unfortunately, pretty much all technology starts out, uh, you know, pretty expensive. And then um, you know, ad advances are made so that uh, it can be, um, you know, made, you know, more affordably and made so that, uh, you know, everyone is able to benefit from them. But it it's weird because it's also like a collective bargaining decision, right? Of like, do we value this thing as a society and do we want to, uh, you know, cover it like we cover, um, you know, breaking your leg or, you know, getting um, chemotherapy? So I think it's, it's sort of interesting that, uh, yeah, the, the, basically the U.S. has chosen not to um, cover IVF. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit surprising to me. I don't, I don't know what you think. Yes. Yeah, so private insurance does not cover, uh, does not cover IVF usually, or it does? Oh, it usually does not. So there's a small number of, uh, companies in the U S that offer, uh, fertility benefits and it's covered as part of a you know, employer sponsored benefit, but you know, the average American does not have coverage for, for IVF. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, yeah, we do, we do make these choices all the time. So I know that, uh, Obamacare added, um, mental health as a requirement, you know, some, some place, I mean, some insurance uh, did cover like things like, I, I, well, no, not mental health. I think it was, I think it was rehab, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it was drug rehab. So a lot of insurances didn't cover this. And, you know, I think some people think, you know, I, I don't think I'm at risk for uh, going to rehab. So, and I think that, you know, there's actually good evidence that rehab is not all that's cracked up to be empirically. Um, but anyways, you know, we made, we made the choice to, uh, uh, to cover it. And yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear. Yeah. I was interested to know that for IVF, how, how much, uh, how expensive is IVF these days? Like what's a, what's a, I know every place is different. What's a ballpark? Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's kind of like saying, uh, how much does a car cost, right? Because it's like, well, do you want a Ferrari or do you want to have a, you know, a Toyota Corolla? So, but I think that the nationwide average is something around 12,000. Um, so it's t around 12,000 per cycle, which is pretty interesting because, um, you know, a C-section, you know, I think the average cost in the U.S. is around um, 15,000. So it's like, yeah. it's actually... I don't know. People, people always, obviously always complain that it's very expensive, but um, it's, it's actually quite affordable if you think about uh, just like the context of a lot of other, um, you know, interventions in um, well, that's, that's, know, the prenatal setting. Like, yeah, that sounds like probably because insurance doesn't cover it. I think what happens, <laughs> you know, that, that makes sense because uh, things that insurance doesn't cover, people pay out of pocket, you know, you actually have to compete on price, so. So maybe maybe if we did cover it, yeah. There's all kinds of, I'm sure, as you know, inefficiencies and, and weird sort of idiosyncrasies in the in the American healthcare system. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. But yeah, I think that the the unintended consequences, I think, is a much. Uh, I, I would say the inequality argument, I think, is more um, legitimate. I'd say the unintended consequences is a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, grasping at straws. So so basically, you know, right now today, we're already we're already doing single gene testing on embryos. So uh, for things like uh, BRCA, for uh, mutations like CHECK2, so these are adult onset predispositional genes. So that means that it's not a guarantee that if you have this gene that you're going to get the disease, even as an adult. It just means that you're 
you know, 3x more likely, 4x more likely, 10x more likely to develop the disease. So we're already doing that. So to say that, um, you know, there's there's more, there's somehow more unintended consequences by using a more powerful risk score that's going to capture more people at equivalent risk, um, you know, doesn't really make sense to me, right? Any time that you make a decision, um, you have to make it with the information that's available at the time, right? So today, uh, we know that these, that this specific um, genetic sequence is going to make you 5x more likely to develop, uh, you know, breast cancer. So, um, you know, if there's some unknown unknown, meaning there's like some other disease that it's, it's that this embryo is actually very low risk for, I mean, how, how can you make a decision based on information that's not known at the time, right? If you use that logic, then you would never be able to pursue any medical intervention, right? No drug would ever be approved because you'd say, okay, well, you know, you've, you've studied it for 10 years, but you know, what happens if in 50 years, something you know, that we don't know uh, could happen, right? I mean, if that was your bar for medical intervention, then, um, you know, we would have, we would, we would choose to have none as a society. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, it seems like this is, uh, as far as all medical interventions go, it seems like this is really on the safe side. All you're doing is you're taking, you know, naturally developing embryos, right? And, and you're, you're implementing them, right? That, that's all you're doing. It's just the fact that you're creating, you know, five or, or 10. How many do you usually create in a, in, in one, uh, for one couple? Yeah, it really varies depending on the uh, the couple and the age of the woman. But yeah, getting anywhere between five and you know twenty embryos is totally within the realm of uh, possibility. It's not it's not you know it's not crazy to have that many. Yeah, just so in, just just in one or two cycles. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I guess I mean you're you're just you're just sort of maybe shifting the distribution of the population, which like happens all the time, right? I mean, the population is always, you know, people are getting together, they're recombining genes, and then that's happening anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so basically, for parents, for couples, where the odds are stacked against them, you're simply allowing them to revert to the mean to say that, hey, you know, collectively, we're more likely to have a child in this, like, top five percentile of the distribution. Why can't we, you know, move our child to the 70th or the 50th, right? Like, why would it be okay to say, let's, ha- let's make them make an uninformed choice rather than an informed choice. Like, so, because currently you're just having a beauty contest between these embryos. You're saying, oh, which one, you know, morphologically, which one just looks like it's going to be better, right? So why would you say that, you know, that's, that's somehow superior than actually having uh, the information that's, that's currently available about the genetic risks that these embryos have? You say they, they do, they look at it uh, before the old ways to look at it morphologically? What, what do they look for? Yeah, it's it's kind of just you know embryologists um, you know look at the trophectoderm. So this is you know the there's there's two parts of an embryo: the inner cell mass and then the trophectoderm. So the trophectoderm is a set of cells that will become the placenta. Um, so I mean I'm not an embryologist, so I I probably can't speak too uh, confidently about this. But essentially, there's just um, you know normal and abnormal ways that both of these structures are supposed to look. And there's a grading system. It's called the uh, Gartner scale. And um, you know there's a reasonable amount of um, uh, agreement around, okay, this is considered an AA, this is an AB, or this is a BB, meaning, you know, AA would be the best. Um, and, and that's just used to score embryos on, um, you know, morphologically, which one, which one looks the, the best. How, how accurate are those, are those ratings? I mean, how I accurate, mean, I guess, I guess, <laughs> I guess that's a strange question because. Really- well, I guess you could measure accuracy by how much do embryologists agree on these scores. And there is, um, mm. you know, there's some level of disagreement, but usually IVF labs will try to um, you know, have the same embryo, have multiple embryologists, um, you know, grade the same embryos and calibrate so that, you know, you know, it's not like if you get one embryologist, they're going to have totally different scores than another one at the same center. But, um, you know, that's, that's the issue with um, 
something that's subjective that involves, um, you know, just taste making by a human is that there is obviously uh, interoper- interoperator variability. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you might, I think you might be a little bit, I mean, I feel like the, the inequality argument, you know, you want to steal man the opponent. I think you might give it a little too much credit because it really proves too much, right? We can decide whether to, you know, improve the healthcare of a third world country. And no one ever comes along and says, well, you know, inequality. No one ever, no one ever uses that as a reason to stop progress on anything. Um, even within our own society, like you said, iPhones, computers, whatever, Ferrari. Some people are concerned with inequality, but we don't just say this service or this good just shouldn't exist, right? We don't do that for anything. So, so what what would be different about this? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely sympathetic to that. I mean, I think that uh, I want it to be available to everyone uh, in the long term. But, you know, of, of course, I wouldn't be working on this if I didn't think that, you know, in the immediate term, there's a huge amount of benefit uh, for these families who, who can afford it. But um, I don't know. I, mean, I would say of all the arguments, that's what I'm actually most sympathetic to, because uh, I, I don't know, I guess I, I just personally want it to be uh, available uh, to everyone. But I, I agree. I don't think it should be used as a reason to, um, you know, stop progress for this or for, for anything else. Sure. Uh, so, you know, one other thing you talk about on the website, you talk about this as an issue of reproductive freedom, which I, which is powerful. And it's not something, I, it's not a way, it's not the way I think people often think about these issues. So can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, people are kind of getting um, very activated by the idea of parents having the ability to choose which embryo they implant based on this information. And it's sort of like, well, um, that's actually much less consequential than you know the ability to choose your your partner, right? I mean, choosing your partner has a much larger consequence than than choosing your your embryo, right? So it's sort of like why why would we why would we say to parents that um, you know you have the ability to um, you know marry whoever you want, you have the ability to have children however you want, but then when it comes to choosing you know which embryo to implant, that's you know where your um, you know your freedom and your ability to access information stops. So are there are any regulatory barriers you guys deal with, or is it in the United States? Is it, are you pretty much free to do what we've been talking about? Yeah, that's what's that's what's so surprising is that um, the IVF space, because it's not covered by insurance and because it's not you know federally funded, it's actually been you know a, a fairly self regulated field, right? So. Um, yeah, I, I just think most people are really surprised by that, that there's any spaces in healthcare that exist in that way where, you know, there, it's, there's still a large uh, cash pay population and there's still, um, you know, a, a large, uh, you know, this standard within the industry of, of self-regulating and, um, you know, there, there's not, a, there's not uh, regulatory bodies. For example, uh, CLIA is, a, um, uh, is an agency that handles um, labs and, Embryo testing actually doesn't fall under CLIA, which is really surprising even to most lab directors that you talk to because um, saliva samples, for example, those are those do fall under CLIA, but uh, embryo samples actually don't fall under CLIA, which is, um, yeah, it, it's, it's just a surprising consequence of the fact that, um, you know, IVF has never been uh, federally funded. Well, I mean, so the, so here's another benefit of not being covered by insurance, right? You might have a, yeah. a lower cost, and then you have less regulation. And maybe if you want to expand it, you know, you want the technology to progress, you want it to get cheaper, you want it to be available to as many people as possible, home and abroad. Maybe, maybe, maybe you guys should not want to be covered by insurance. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, it is interesting. It's sort of like uh, it's a double edged sword. Uh, that's it's it's certainly true, right? I mean, I think if you talk to most. Uh, 
entrepreneurs in the um, you know healthcare space, they'll say that they're extremely frustrated with insurance companies. They're extremely frustrated with how difficult it is to insert a product into the system that makes patients' lives better, makes doctors' lives better, but for whatever reason, it's not uh, appetizing enough to the insurance company or uh, whoever the payer is, and then uh, it's not able to um, you know become part of the process in the way that. Uh, you know, there's there's more free competition in pretty much every other uh, uh, industry besides healthcare. Are are any of your customers um, the ones that signed up, or do you plan on having customers from abroad? Oh, international! Oh, yeah, we love international folks. I mean, it, pe- people don't realize this. Whenever they talk about uh, the cowboys of um, IVF, they always think that oh, like this is probably happening in China. But the U.S. is actually the most um, forward thinking and the, the place that is the fertility tourism destination for the entire world. So mm-hmm. in China, surrogacy is illegal. In China, mm-hmm. sex selection during um, embryo testing is illegal. And you know both of those things are illegal in the U.S. So you actually see a huge influx of um, fertility tourism from uh, you know China, India, um, even parts of Europe where, where surrogacy um, is illegal. So um, yeah, I think that's, that's something that, that most Americans are, are surprised to learn that actually um, you know, we're, we're much... Um, um, you know, we're much more forward thinking and more and doing more things than uh, than China, for example. Yeah. So I've seen survey data, um, you know, that's, that's um, it doesn't contradict that. But, it's, you know, it's surprising in light of what you're saying that if you uh, if you uh, survey uh, fertility specialists or doctors in the U.S. versus China and India, for example, those on China and India will be more aggra- more aggressive about, you know, the necessity of selecting for uh, good traits. Have you ever seen any data like that? Because I, I remember reading this. Yeah, yeah, I, I do know what you're talking about. It was sort of a survey of just people's general perceptions about, you know, would testing embryos for diseases be, um, you know, a good or bad thing to do morally and, and people's general perceptions of it. But so, yes, it, it is surprising, right? There is more support for it in um, India and China, but um, just from a regulatory perspective, the, the regula- regulations are actually more lax in the U.S. and more restrictive um, in those parts of the world. Yeah. Interesting. Where are you guys located? I hear you're, I hear you're in the office, right? Yeah, yeah. We're uh, based in San Francisco, and uh, we have folks all over the country. Uh-huh. And um, so do you find that, um, so we talked about sort of the um, people have, you know, ethical ideas. Do you find, do you think that being from an immigrant background changes your views of these things? Did you, do you see in like your work, do you see a difference between sort of how Americans look at these issues and how people from other countries look at them? Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, I don't know. I haven't actually thought about, you know, how does, how does, you know, the fact that I'm Pakistani impact the work? I mean, I think that the most significant thing that's that's impacting my perspective on this is just, you know, seeing the impact of a disease firsthand and really not wanting to have that myself or to pass it on to, um, you know, my future children. So I think that that's probably the most um, significant impact. I think that whenever I talk to someone who has one of these diseases or uh, a sibling with one of these diseases, they um, resonate with it a lot more than people who are sort of were already, uh, you know, won the genetic lottery at birth and they are super healthy and they don't have any concerns on their mind. To them, they think it's designer babies, but for people with, who, you know, suffer from these conditions, they're like, oh, wow, this is something um, that would uh, really benefit um, me personally. And they, they just have a very different perspective on it. I mean, I think in terms of um, coming from an immigrant background, I think, you know, Steelman, one of the concerns that uh, people raise about polygenic risk scores is that there's a lot more data on uh, Europeans right now than on non-Europeans. And 
Um, I'm also sympathetic to that issue because, uh, you know, I obviously want want these scores to work super well on South Asians and uh, other minorities. And I think that something that's missed in those discussions is that there's actually, you know, a huge amount of attention on that issue, right? So statistical geneticists are spending, um, you know, a lot of time in developing new techniques and new methods to um, augment the data and to make it so that um, these scores, even in the absence of uh, an equal amount of data on every uh, ancestry group, can actually still perform remarkably well, um, um, you know, even in the absence of data. So there's some, um, there's actually uh, one company, they're called uh, Myriad, and they have a breast cancer risk score, and they recently published results showing that it works, um, you know, well across all ancestries. So we've already sort of seen uh, wins and attention uh, disease by disease to make sure that these scores um, work for everyone. And I think that that's something that, um, um, you know, perhaps I might be particularly interested, particularly self-interested in that, okay, you know, there's not as much data on me personally. So, uh, you know, I'd love to see, um, you know, more South Asian data, more East Asian data. Um, I think you're, you're Palestinian, correct? Uh, yeah, my dad's Palestinian and mom's Jordanian. Yeah. So basically, I don't know if you know this, but Middle Eastern or Middle Eastern data is actually some of the, the most poorly represented. I don't know why, but, um, you know, it's, it's for whatever reason we have our data sets contain, um, I think the least amount of data is, is on uh, Middle Eastern people and maybe then uh, admixed people. So basically people who are um, hybrids or, or more than that. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a super uh, Im- important problem. But I think that what I find most surprising about uh, everything related to reproductive technology is just how controversial every single thing has been. I mean, you know, birth control was fought for decades. Artificial insemination was a, was initially denounced as a form of adultery. IVF was strongly opposed for creating test tube babies. Uh, condoms were initially opposed, and you know, eventually, all of these practices became mainstream. And the scientists who pushed through the controversy, um, you know, ended up uh, winning Nobel prizes. You know, talking specifically about IVF. So, I think that's that's particularly surprising to me. It's just that you know, there's an enormous amount of um, you know, benefit from each of these, you know, each, each of these, um, you know, products that have that have existed inside reproductive tech, but uh, unilaterally, you know, pretty much all of them have been, uh, you know, met with a huge amount of, um, uh, yeah, just an initial um, pushback. Yeah, I guess in, in historical perspective, then, I mean, the reaction to this seems pretty muted, right? There's no big Supreme Court cases. There's no big, you know, clamoring for regulation. It seems like, it seems like, you know, it's uh, sort of like standing on the shoulder of giants, but like morally, right? It's like the reproductive freedom thing in the U.S. became established. Um, Obviously, it's not universally accepted, uh, but it's accepted by, you know, a lot of elite and mainstream institutions. And then the new things, I mean, there's no, uh, you know, it's different. It's like, you know, like homosexuality is like, you know, something that's like always, you know, sort of controversial. Uh, but something like IVF, right? I don't think opposition to it is like seen as like in any way like a mainstream thing. I think because everyone sort of can see, can imagine like themselves getting older, right? And having mm-hmm. and having problems. I, I think of the fact that it's just like, it's sort of like just, you know, something that happens to you often, you know, if you're old, you know, I think makes people sympathetic. And the fact that, you know, everyone, you know, can mm-hmm. sympathize with the idea uh, that you want your children to be healthy and not have diseases and have the best chance in life. Um, and maybe that dampens. I mean, like we, we pull people on this stuff and, you know, it's like, you know, they're inconsistent. They'll say, you know, uh, it's, uh, 
good to, you know, uh, to deal with diseases. I think that'll get support, but anything that's like any kind of enhancement makes people uncomfortable. But in the real world, it's hard to draw that distinction, isn't it? I mean, like schizophrenia is a disease. Okay, what about bipolar, right? What about OCD, right? Um, how, how do you think about that? Like, is there really a distinction here or is it just sort of, you know, there's all traits and just we, we just have to really make choices about what we want to deal with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think that the person who's most qualified to make these decisions is really the parent, right? I mean, if you lived with, um, you know, heart disease, or if you live with breast cancer, if you live with any of these diseases, and you know what it, what it truly entails, um, or you were a caregiver to someone with one of these diseases, I feel like that's the person who's most qualified to decide, um, you know, what makes the most, most sense for their child. So I think in terms of, you know, what's the line between diseases and traits, I mean, uh, one of the maybe beneficial consequences of the insurance uh, system is that we have these ICD-9 codes. We have all these codes for, um, you know, these are uh, considered, um, you know, uh, diseases and this is what we're going to reimburse for. These are the treatments that we're going to reimburse for. So I think that, you know, we have a really nice catalog of, um, you know, what we consider, um, you know, therapeutic versus what we consider uh, cosmetic. And I think that, um, you know, perhaps for some, um, some of these conditions, the lines might be blurry, but I think that, um, you know, it's sort of similar to the current healthcare system, right? Where it's like, it's a problem if you're going to your doctor and you're trying to solve it, right? So similarly, if a parent feels like it's um, something that's very, um, that could very significantly negatively impact their child's life, then, you know, I think that's something that should be considered. I mean, they're the, you know, they're the ultimate arbiter of uh, how their child grows up. And, um, you know, they're the owners of their, uh, you know, them and their partner's genetic information. So I, I really think that it's about, um, autonomy and informed choice for the parents fundamentally. I mean, our job is really just to deliver good science and to deliver good counseling, right? We're supposed to do a um, excellent job at, um, you know, calculating these risks, um, you know, doing the chemistry, making sure that, um, you know, the scores that we're uh, reporting, uh, we're very confident about. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's kind of, that is the end of the day for us, right? It's, it's ultimately up to the couple and the clinical team, Um to decide what actually makes the most sense for for um, yeah for the for the implantation decision. Yeah, I mean our, our moral intuitions on this are are pretty much yeah in line. So where do you see the industry going in say five to ten years? Mm, where do I think it's going, or where would I love to see it go? Well, well both. Where do you think it's going? And, you know, what, what would be the best case scenario? Mm, well, I definitely do think that uh, you know this type of testing is going to become. Um, much more common because I think that um, it's, like I said, it's just one of the most fundamental human desires is I want to have, I want my child to suffer less uh, than I did. And if you can, um, you know, stack the odds against disease, uh, why would you choose not to? So I think it is just going to be a question of um, education. Do you know that this exists? Do you know uh, what the costs are? Do you know how to access it? Um, so I think that's definitely going to become more common uh, in the future. I, I hope that there's going to be expanding um, insure, insurance coverage, and maybe you'd be surprised to hear this, but I'd also, uh, you know, uh, welcome actually more regulatory involvement because I think that there are going to be many more companies that are going to come into the space, and I think that there is the risk for, um, you know, uh, parents or doctors or any, you know, someone who's receiving this technology to not really have the pro- appropriate safeguards in place to make sure that. Um, you know, the testing is operating at the level that it should for as consequential of a decision as this as this actually is. So I think that's going to happen over the next uh, five to 10 years. And then I guess my wish list for things that I would love to see happen would just be, um, 
you know, many more, um, uh, like, I guess some things that we consider to be sci-fi becoming real. But basically, one of the main limitations during IVF is just the number of um, eggs that you can, uh, number of eggs and embryos that you can create. And there's a lot of really interesting technology called uh, in vitro gametogenesis and somatic cell nu- nuclear transfer that are looking at ways to generate, um, you know, eggs from stem cells, ways to transfer genetic material from somatic cells into egg cells. Like there's, there's many different, um, you know, techniques that have been proposed and many of which that have actually borne out in um, animal models that could be applied uh, therapeutically therapeutically in the uh, reproductive setting. And I think that's super exciting because then um, not only do you give couples the opportunity to have healthy kids, but you'll also allow women to have a much wider uh, fertility window, right? It's like, I, I don't think you need to talk to many women to find out that they're, you know, stressed about, you know, having to have a kid before 35 or 37 or whatever the new, um, you know, whatever the new uh, window is that you want to uh, put on, um, you know, when, when it might be, uh, you know, healthy or more fortuitous to um, have a child. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of these technologies that are, uh, I think, underfunded, underhyped, and um, underinvestigated, if those come to fruition, I think that, um, you know, women will have basically the same freedom that uh, men do of basically being able to, um, you know, have kids whenever and not have to have their, uh, you know, biological clock ticking in the background. Yeah. So, Nora, I know you have a, a meeting coming up. Um, is there any, uh, you know, is there any, are you on Twitter? Is there a place where people can find you? Do you, you know, is there, a, you know, anything, um, you know, anyway, if people are interested in your work and want to keep up, you know, how would you advise them to do so? Yeah. So, you can check out Orchid at www.orchidhealth.com. And then you can find me on Twitter at, at newer underscore Siddiqui. Okay, great. And I'll be very interested, you know, when the, when the company, you know, starts operating full time next year, and uh, we'll have to have you on to talk about how it's going. Cool. All right. Thanks so much for the for the time. I really appreciate it, Richard.